The following is a Poppy Chulo Radio original program. The views and opinions expressed in the commentaries and or interviews in the following program are solely those of the individuals and are not views of Poppy Chulo Radio, its parent, affiliate, or subsidiary companies. Welcome to The Waking Dream, a poppychularadio.com original series. Poppy Chula Radio, pop culture on demand. Today is Monday, August 15th, 2022, and I am your host, Vincent Hatcher. During this podcast, we'll be having an in-depth discussion on Netflix's The Sandman. Please welcome my co-host, starting with Jeffrey Aruz. Welcome back, listeners. Wakey, wakey. And Priscilla Obregon. Hey, everybody. I love saying your last name now, Priscilla, because it makes it, you kind of sound like a countess or like a duchess or like an awesome female villain in a movie. Yes, I'm a villain. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dream come oh, true. Hail the Grand Duchess Obregon. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into our discussion of season one, episode three, which was titled Dream a Little Dream of Me and debuted August 5th, 2022 via Netflix. Here's the official synopsis of the episode. Morpheus tracks down the last known person in possession of his sand and receives an unexpected lesson on humanity. Ethel pays a visit to her son. So we start off and we have a pub and we have a lady who we have seen before, but was never fully introduced. So the, the woman, she has this door at the pub before she opens it, she hears a little girl call her name, and we learn that this girl is Astra, and the woman is Johanna Constantine. And Astra is asking her to come, and now she's asking to get out of there, because something's going on. Johanna asks her for answers, and Astra's like, well, go talk to Loke. He's passed out. He's over there. And we see this bearded guy just kind of chilling on the pub floor with a book that very clearly says Satanic Rituals, because, you know, that's what you do in the pub. And Joanna tries to wake him up. He's kind of groggy, kind of out of it, and says that they were just having fun. And we find out that this is Astra's daddy. And he reveals there are more people still inside. So Johanna goes in, walks down a hall, and there's... You know, just a door with some light coming out of its frame. There's some noise. She goes to open the door, but she hesitates for a split second. And when she's hesitating, she finally gives up and goes to open the door. And when she does, she's dragged into the room. And the next thing we see is Johanna waking up in the back of a cab. I mean, I, I've I've done that. You know, I've just walked into a bar, gone to open a door, and ended up in the back of a cab. It happens, you know. So getting out of the cab after she kind of jostles herself back to reality, what's going on? Johanna is interacting with a woman who is, you know, at first glance, she looks kind of like, you know, your typical homeless person that's got a bunch of belongings and just standing there. But we find out that this lady is named Hetty, and Johanna clearly knows her. 
And Hetty warns Johanna that something, or more like someone, is coming. And that someone is Dream, because he wants his sand back. So if you remember, his sand was in the possession of Johanna Constantine, as we found out in previous episodes, and he has now come to make her pay the piper and give it back. Well, Johanna isn't having any of it. She's like, okay, cool, sure, you know, Dreamland, Sandman, whatever, that's just a fairy tale, whatever. But then as she goes to walk into where she's going, who is standing right there dramatically at the top of the steps but Morpheus himself? And Morpheus says to Johanna, we have business. And she says, get in line, and just walks past him into the nearby church. As Johanna heads inside, we are introduced to another character who she knows and has clearly worked with in the past named Rick the Vic, who has called Johanna for a rather interesting purpose. You see, the royal princess is asking to marry, in a rushed ceremony that is very private, a prominent footballer. Now, for those Americans like me who might be ignorant, footballer, soccer player, interchangeable, used differently depending on which country you're in. So he's a soccer player. And Johanna's a little bit curious, but she says, you know what, I don't like working with royalty. You know what happened last time. I'm not going to do it. Rick the Vic is like, I'll double, triple your pay, whatever, what have you. Still not enough. Johanna's about to leave. But then she hears the princess from somewhere else in this church making some hubbub. And she's curious, so she turns to the Vic and says, take off your top. And next thing we know, Johanna is administering this, uh, officiating, excuse me, this wedding between the royal princess and her footballer boyfriend. And in a clever turn of how to conduct an exorcism, Johanna has them recite vows that I know I have never heard before. And hopefully no one else has, because hopefully no one else has ever had a priest try to exorcise the bride or the groom during the wedding. But uh, the groom starts coughing. He has a little bit of issues getting his vows out. And that's when we kind of realize she's been doing a little bit of an exorcism. The demon comes out in this gruesome little scene of ripping the man's head open. And then the demon is there. And Johanna's like, all right, cool. So it was the groom. Princess is taken to safety. Joanna starts doing her exorcism thing. Meanwhile, Dream is like, here's his name. This is his name. Take care of him. Send him back to hell. But then the demon's like, I can tell you where some of your stuff is. And Dream is suddenly like, wait, give me a moment. But Johanna, mm-mm. Johanna is all about getting that demon back to hell, and she vanish, or banishes him before he can have a conversation with Dream. And this is our introduction officially to Johanna Constantine. So, Jeff, what did you think about Miss Constantine? What did you think about the princess and the footballer and the pastor taking off her top? All that good stuff. She was fantastic. I loved the backstory, you know, in, in, um, I'm glad that the backstory remained the same from the comics because I might not know anything about the Sandman and that comic. And I might not have read any of the Constantine or Constantine comics, but I know the story. I've seen the, uh, short-lived, uh, NBC series, Constantine, I've seen him adapted uh, on the CW as a part of the Legends of Tomorrow. I don't think I've ever actually seen the Keanu Reeves movie. I know, blasphemy. What can you do? Uh, I think I've seen <gasps> clips of it. I know. I, I felt like a gas was going to come. It, it's fine. I, I, I have survived this long. I will watch it at some point. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> I think I killed Priscilla. But, um, okay, so um, seeing her brought to life, seeing that, you know, they they basically did a gender-bent version, because I don't think I've ever seen a female Constantine before, uh, was pretty awesome. It was very 2022. I do have an opinion about it, but I don't want to give it right now. I'll wait for... It's come a little bit later on as we talk more about uh, this particular character. But she was badass. She was awesome. Uh, the exorcism was fascinating. The twist that it was not the bride, a.k.a. the royal, that it was the footballer was fantastic. Props to the CGI because the demon crawling out of his mouth and basically, as it's, like, crawling out, like, splits him open and kills him. I mean, poor dude. I have no idea how you got that demon in you. But it was still visually impressive to watch. Uh, yeah, very, very good horror film vibes from all of that. Uh, Rick the Vic was awesome as well. Just an interesting character. It's a shame that this is just like a 10 episode series because each episode we're introduced to really fascinating characters. And I'm like, I want to see more of this person. But then they're only there for like a scene or two. So that's kind of like what happened with this opening. But all of it was fascinating and visually impressive to watch. Excellent. Yeah, I you know I will say Priscilla before I give you your go that the the way they're doing the characters, Jeff, would you agree that they're doing it well? Because I think they are. I do. I just want more of them. So maybe it's a testament for them introducing these characters so well that I want to spend some more time with them. And uh, it's, yeah, at least so far, like I know the story is, it's all about Dream. So we have to follow Dream and his journey. But I'm like, damn, they're like introducing this really rich world. And uh, I want more of it. It also could be because we're slowly binging this. So, yes. <laughs> you know, I have no idea what's to come in the next, you know, rest of the episodes. But uh, because, listeners, we are actually slowly binging this. We are recording this once a week, two episodes per week. So, um, you know, it, it's making me crave more because everything is so fantastic. Yeah, you know, it would be very easy because we've we've casted about shows in the past where they end up introducing a metric ton of characters or even just a handful of characters. And it is something that I personally feel is really difficult to do. So I, I'm glad you agree because I think they are handling it really well and no one has kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, so speaking by about the wayside, Priscilla, I inadvertently put you there for our digression into characters. Um, so first and most importantly, Priscilla, do you now feel that you want to expel Jeff since he's never seen Constantine? Oh, my God. How have you not seen the movie? It was, like, I don't know, part of growing up and liking comics is that you had to watch Constantine. I'm going to call it Constantine because they they called it Constantine. It's difficult. I think it's because they're British. You know, the British would call it Constantine. Well, you know, the funny thing is, my one boyfriend pointed out that apparently Constantine was the originally intended pronunciation, and it just kind of got turned into Constantine. Personally, I prefer Constantine, and you will hear me say both, but, you know, you do you, (laughs) boo-boo. Right. 
So Priscilla, but talk I, well, to I, you I, let me just defend you. myself for half a oh, second. Yeah. I feel like I've seen a lot of elements of it because I do have like there are images from the film that when I think about the film like pop up. So I know I've seen bits and pieces of it. I just don't think I've ever actually. It's like one of those things where. You know, you're flipping through the TV, and, like, it, there was a point in time where it was, like, always on, like, premium cable. So I know I've dropped in on moments. I just have never seen it, I feel, from, like, beginning to end, which I probably doesn't help my argument, but what can you do? Well, you know, you know we would never expel you, Jeff, because, you know, not only do we not have the power, but that's by the wayside. We just love you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Plus, you don't have the top on. <laughs> can you imagine though expelling jeff like a hand suddenly popping out of his mouth and just turning into this <laughs> giant ass demon what the fuck right i mean i was just talking about expelling him from the podcast priscilla's over here like projecting she wants uh, to exercise me yeah <laughs> i do need some more jumping jacks in my life but i mean priscilla that's the perfect segue to tell us how you felt about our introduction to joanna and all that happened talk to me I like her. She's mysterious and she's still got a trench coat, but it's still like a feminine trench coat. So it's like you're following John Constantine's like, like look, but making it your own and twisting it. Like I wasn't one of those people, one of those nerds who was like, no, you got to keep it part of the comics. Like when I heard that we were going to have Jenna Coleman be uh, Joanna Constantine, I was like, yes. Give me more of her. I loved her on Doctor Who. So I was looking forward to seeing what she would do with the character. And she's sassy, but cool, but still, like, really, like, I, I, I don't know if you could say educated, but, like, she knows what she's doing. She's cunning is is the word. And... To her, for her to be, to look at Dream, one of the endless, and be like, get in line, pal. Like, wow, what a badass. And the priest and the, I'm going to say the bag lady outside, because I don't know what her name is. But I love both of them. Like, the priest, I was, I was again, astounded that, that she was a woman. Like, I was like, did they, was it like this in the comics? Because... It's weird to see a woman priest, at least here in where I live. It's, it's They're all males. So I thought that that was, like, progressive and pretty cool. And she she worked well off of Constantine. I will uh, say the lady outside, her name was Mad Hetty. Mm-hmm. Mad Hetty? Or if you want to just, if you have a trouble remembering her name, just call her Downer Luck Mary Poppins. <laughs> Oh, yeah, all she needed was a tuppence. More than two hundred years old. Yeah. Yeah. old, and she and she's got like future telling powers, and she could tell that Dream was coming to see her. So there's more to her mm-hmm. than just mm-hmm. being a crazy bag lady outside of a church. Which again, like I feel exactly like Jeff. I'm like. Please, like, camera, focus on this character more. I want to find out more about her. I want to know her backstory. But it's mysterious, and everything about this is mysterious. Cue mysterious theme. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But, Priscilla, I have one more question for you. Because Mm -hmm. you are someone like me, and granted, it's been years since I've read them, but 
having had the experience of reading the comics and nothing to do with the differences between the show and the books, but just with the characters, do you feel that they are transitioning into the show the the same way they captivated you in the comics? Yes. It's not the exact same and they don't follow the exact same dialogue sometimes, but I feel like they've got the feeling that weird sort of like, almost ephemeral feeling about the world around them that it, it it's gritty but it's still got this magic to it it's it's like yeah. that with every neil gaiman work and it's like that with this show it's it's perfect I, i'm glad you mentioned that because like i have watched some of his other ips that were turned into shows or movies or whatnot and he is a fascinating writer in the way that he weaves all these tales because as jeff kind of mentioned and i just had priscilla touch on there are so many characters in this world and it can be very easy to get lost but i found myself the same as like when i read the comics and i'm like oh i wish this person had their own like spinoff comic because they're fascinating you know and i find myself with the show i'm like i agree about matt hetty like is she going to come back? And if not, she's so memorable. I wish that she would get her own episode. But there's such this great world building going on with all these supernatural creatures. And it really helps with the immersion factor and the way that they're written. Because some of them only have a couple of lines. But you're reeled in by the costuming, the acting, the words, and the little breadcrumbs that you're wondering if they're going to come back later. And I really, really enjoyed the opening to this episode. Constantine was absolutely wonderful. I I love the fact that she was almost like Constantine after rehab, because as we all know, our Constantine that we're used to is constantly drunk and disheveled and chain smoking. And we got a different version of him as Johanna. And I mean, yes, obviously she, she clearly probably imbibes, but she is relatively well kept together. There's order in her chaos. She's bearing the weight of her supernatural life and all the, the thing, the bad things that have happened to her and they're weighing on her, but she still manages to be so svelte and elegant and just like ready to kick supernatural ass if she needs to. So I was totally here for her. Very powerful female character, and I loved it. Now, speaking of another female character that was very interesting, we get to go back and see the rest of that visit that Ethel was having with her son. Now, listeners, if you remember, Ethel, at the end of an episode, had walked into a facility, which turned out to be one she owned and created for the sole purpose of keeping her son, John, imprisoned so he didn't go out in the world and do things. So we have Ethel and John. They're having their little mother-son reunion, and she's trying to help John and herself by finding the ruby because she knows the dream is coming. And we get to see a vulnerable side to Ethel. We got a little bit of that last episode when she was talking to the Corinthian, but she still had that hard steel undercoat, and the Corinthian didn't really get through to her. I, I feel like here we're seeing her very, very vulnerable because she's with her Achilles heel. She's with her son, John. And she's like, John, please tell me where the ruby is so I can get it. And maybe we can give it back to Dream and he won't kill us. And John is like, well, you're a liar. I, I don't really want to help you because we moved so many times growing up because something was coming or something was going on or your boyfriend at the time was beating you up again and she's pleading your case like no this is the real deal this is really happening and john points out that 
well, you know, even if I get you the ruby, it doesn't matter because I altered it so nobody but me can use it. And if they try, bad things will happen. And this also furthers a conversation where John grabs a book and confronts Ethel about her lies because dun, 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 he knows who his father is. You might wonder after a hundred years or so, Roderick Burgess has been dead for a long time, how John, who was in prison, would find out. But it turns out reading in prison is really easy. And he got his hands on some books that told him all about Roderick Burgess. And he made the assumption and the connection that that's his father. And he tells his mama, if you want the ruby, you need to be honest with me for the first time ever. Now, full disclosure, we do jump back to Johanna and Dream, but I'm going to add a little bit more meat and potatoes to this Ethel and John scene before we revisit our friends searching after the sand. So when confronted with you need to tell me the truth, Ethel does something that Ethel doesn't normally do. And she tells John the true story about his father, his birth, the desired abortion that she didn't want, and all of the hijinks that went down in the Burgess household. And John realizes she is being honest with him. And he's still not keen on giving up the ruby because he says, hey, why don't we use the ruby to make a dream come true where Morpheus, a.k.a. Dream, doesn't exist, a world without dream? Ethel's not sold on the idea. And they talk about things and a little bit more, and he's still not keen on giving her the ruby. But then Ethel kind of changes her strategy, and she's like, you know, you hurt people with the ruby. He's like, that won't happen again. She can kind of tell that, you know, he's probably not going to give her the ruby, so she has to think about how she's going to handle this. They're continuing to have this back and forth, which was a really interesting connection between these two. And we'll leave Ethel and John there for right now. Um, so now we go back to Joey and Andre, and they're talking outside the church after the exorcism. He fills her in on what's going on with him, his missing tools, the mystery of what he needs and why he's after her. And she's like, oh, well, I sold the pouch because I could never even get the damn drawstrings open. And Dream is like, well, we need to get it back. And she's like, what's the big deal? And Dream points out that without the sand and without him getting his powers back and his other tools humanity is going to face ultimate disaster and perish. So, I mean, this is a good pep talk, you know, to motivate somebody to helping him. And she tells Dream, okay, cool, I'll help you, but I'll work alone because I only work alone. And as she points that out and he's about to rebut, she also notices a nearby raven saying that, oh, yeah, Dream always does have a raven. And he's like, no, I don't. And she's like, well, then that one over there isn't yours. And... Dream's attention is distracted as he walks over to a raven and demands him to tell him his name, and Matthew introduces himself. And clearly, Dream is not too happy, and Lucien sent you without my advice, against my order, and I don't need your help. And clearly, Dream is hung up about Jessamy, which is understandable. I'm still heartbroken about Jessamy. And at that point, Matthew's like, you do need my help because she just escaped. And he turns, and Johanna is gone. So Priscilla, talk to me about Ethel and John, Matthew the Raven, and the interaction between Johanna and Dream, and working together or not. 
my god, I loved the interaction between Ethel and John. It was very um, complicated. It was nuanced. You could see that um, Ethel is just... She's used to lying. She's used to getting her way. She's used to being sneaky and just not really telling the truth all the time and twisting the words to make sense to her. But with her son, like she started lying and her son's like, nope, cut the bullshit. I'm, I'm, you're going to tell me the truth for once in your goddamn life. And she just caved because he, like you said, he's her weakness. He's what is makes her vulnerable. And it's so weird for to call him her son when you see both of them and, like, he looks older than she does. So, obviously, that prison hasn't been doing him all that well. But that orb of protection has been doing her really well. And for her to finally reveal that Robert Burgess was um, his father, it's it's a big step for her. And I'm not going to go further into what happens because we'll get to that later. But suffice to say, this is one of my favorite parts of the episode. I felt like it was very, like, powerful. And I felt like even though these are people that, like, maybe the actors are somewhat similar in age or maybe one of them is older, like, and not the right one is older, like, they still came off as mother and son, which is really impressive to me as actors. So they they did a great job. And we are introduced later to Dream to Dream's new Raven, even though he's not in in do, not inclined to accept him. What was his name? Was his name Gabriel? Matthew. Matthew, yes. And ah, oh, I love him. Pat Oswald's voice. Yay! It almost took me out of it when I when I first heard him and I'm like, wait. Wait, I know that voice. It's Pat Oswalt. Oh, you did the same thing I did. I was like, I know that voice. I know that voice. Holy shit, it's Pat Oswalt. Yup. I, I I yelled it out at my screen when I was watching it. I was like, ah, yay. I didn't know he was cast as the Raven. So that was a surprising treat for me. Um, And he's right. He This streetwise Raven knows a lot more about human behavior than... Dream does because obviously Dream is used to be, being in control and Johanna is like nope I'm going to leave whenever I want to you're not going to keep me here and he, <laughs> I, I loved that he went from being the mysterious man who like showed up in front of her and was like hey I want this and she's just kind of bats him away and is like nope I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to go home and you're not going to stop me so, like, I don't know. It, it's just, it's amusing. This whole episode is amusing. I love it. Jeff, any thoughts, observations, or feelings? I mean, I pretty much agree with everything Priscilla said. Uh, cut and paste. Uh, the entire sequence with uh, mother and son was incredibly fascinating to watch. Like, we have this episode where, you know, we're on a quest. Technically, we're on a quest for something in both storylines. But, uh, you know, the one with Dream and Constantine is, uh, you know, feels incredibly urgent. This one, which is smaller and much more intimate, there's still that really strong sense of urgency 
in it as well. So, uh, yeah, it, it was incredibly fascinating to watch, almost like a master class with these two actors in this white room. Yeah, I loved it. I The mother and son dynamic can be really hard to capture with actors. I've seen it go bad. I've seen it go really well. And then when you throw in the equation of the son clearly being older than the mother, or he just looks like he is, either way, um, it can go wrong, but it didn't. I was captivated throughout the entire episode with these scenes, and you know, especially in the opening gambit with those two, after the way we, you know, we kind of left things with her just walking in, I was really curious to see where it was going to go. And they had such amazing chemistry. And once again, props out to was it Jolie Richardson? Was that who it was, right? Yes. Yeah. Like she ran a full gamut of emotional changes and vulnerability and frustration and all of this. And John D sitting over here, just like stoic and like, I know I'm right. And I know you're going to give in to me. And it was really fascinating to watch when his, you know, his temper did kind of come out about the, the lies she had told and everything over the years. And then we transitioned to like kind of poignant mother and son moments. It was absolutely beautiful. And the the interaction outside the church with Johanna and Dream, I, I think what I really, really loved is, Priscilla, I, I love that you touched on the kind of enjoyment and almost comedic aspect. I found this section to be not slapstick, but comedic with the right level of tone for what is otherwise a serious narrative. There, there was almost like an expectation of the sad trombone when Dream turned around and uh, Johanna was gone, like, wah, wah, wah. And I, I really, really... This isn't something we hit, we've touched on too much in this recording so far, but the the scenery, I, I kept finding myself fascinated by the scenery around them and just like the subtle lighting and, and the fog here and there. And, you know, later we had some rain, which we'll get to later, but I really, really enjoyed the scenery because it suited the conversations that were happening. And with the mother and son segment, we were in this really brightly lit cell and to me, the bright light was symbolic of no more secrets, no more shadows. Ethel's not hiding anymore. She's revealing herself vulnerable to John. And then we transpose over to a dark environment for the conversation between Dream and Johanna. You know, Dream is on this quest. He's lost. He's in the dark. Johanna is, you know, cursed or whatever she is, and she's dealing with constant darkness. And they are two souls in darkness who are kind of sharing a moment and trust is very hard for them. And so, you know, one getting the up on the other with her distracting him and running away and, you know, him realizing that she pulled the wool. There was a, there was a visual narrative that matched with what was going on. And I found that absolutely fascinating. So moving on, Joanna's gone. She's off in the dark. And Matthew and Dream are, they're kind of having a little introductory that, you know, it's not continuing to go well. You know, Matthew reveals he was a human that died not too long ago, as Priscilla pointed out, and Lucian sent him because she felt that Dream really needed someone to help him be in touch with humanity because, let's face it, he's been locked up for 100-plus years, and before that, he just kind of did his job. He didn't really connect with humans that well. And so there's kind of this, like, grudging acceptance that he does kind of need maybe Matthew's help or he'll at least let him stick around until he finds Johanna. And... She just disappeared in the middle of what I assume was London, so clearly it could be very frustrating to try and find her, but Dream is like, aha, she's probably asleep, you're right, and I know how I can find her. So, Dream uses his sand powers to connect to Johanna's dreams and find her, 
And we find ourselves right back full circle at the beginning of the episode. Johanna is once again suffering from the same dream of Astra and the pub and the door, except now we see what happens after she goes through that door. She was fighting a demon. Astra, who shouldn't have been in there, comes to check on Johanna, and the demon grabs her. Johanna is, like, freaking out, like, no, oh, my God, okay, I got to save you, because the demon's got his hand on her. Johanna's kind of holding her other arm, and Johanna closes the, the portal to hell that was in that place, and we get something that I did not expect to see. We, we see Johanna holding the hand of Astra, and as it pans away, we see that she's actually holding just part of Astra, like Astra Light, just her arm and part of her shoulder. And this is enough that Johanna shocks herself awake from the horror and the atrocity of it all. And on top of that, to compound her frustration and fear from that dream, who is standing creepily in her apartment but dream himself? He followed her through the dreamways, and he saw her dream. And there's this kind of silent moment between the two of them, and he says, you know what? I can take that memory away. I can make that dream never come back. And Johanna's like, I know how this works. You're not going to do it for free. It's if I help you find your sand. And they begin to talk. They kind of have some wordplay back and forth about life, her memory, and Roderick Burgess. And she's kind of talking about Roderick Burgess like, oh, yeah, that charlatan who thought he was something hot. And he was really well known and all that for having the devil locked up in his basement. And there's this moment when she says that and Dream is just staring at her completely deadpan face. Like, no emotion, but yet showing some emotion. Props to Tom Sturridge again for that captivating look of detachment, yet not detached. And Johanna realizes, oh shit, you were that devil, weren't you? It was you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a brief break here because I want to see if you guys agree with me. I feel like personally, this was kind of the beginning of a turning point in their relationship throughout this episode where Johanna suddenly kind of realizes that, yeah, he's endless and he's inhuman and all of that. But he just went through some shit. She's been through some shit. And I, I personally felt like there was a beginning of the grudging respect for him from her and a little bit more of that willingness for her to think about, okay, maybe he's not an asshole. What do you guys think, Jeff? Yeah, I think so. I think that could have been a bit of a turning point for them, uh, you know, because the relationship, you know, if you even wanted to call it a relationship was, um, you know, very gruff from the beginning. Uh, but it, I mean, it makes sense. They're both kind of loners and he's used to demanding people to do stuff and uh, she's used to not taking shit from anybody. So I think that might have been the start of something uh, that we see continue on throughout the episode. I did enjoy that we got to see what happened to Astra. Bad things always happen to Astra. And seeing it happen the way that it did was like, whoa. Just because, like, you know, there was a hand that was left. So that was really interesting and kind of gnarly. Yeah, we joke sometimes about calling, like, insert name of show or realm CPS. Like, this was definitely one of those moments where I was like, oof, that's, uh, yeah, we need to do a child welfare check in hell. <laughs> Priscilla, right. what about you? 
I felt so bad for the little girl. I was like, damn. You don't even get to, like, be dragged to hell whole. Like, your whole freaking arm got ripped off by the gate ceiling. Like, I was hoping that was cauterized in hell or something, but maybe... I don't know. I just, I, I don't know enough about Constantine to know about if this was an actual, like, character in his comics. And I say his because, like, you, the the gender's flipped. But still, like, Joanna, that is a terrible nightmare to go through day after day after day. Like, or night after night, I should say. But still, like damn and it's not a nightmare that's the worst part it's a memory so she's lived through this and dream even recognized that like this is not a dream of my making this is a dream of your making so like i felt like i feel like he's slowly starting to get more not human but he's starting to get more animated he's starting to reveal more about himself especially when Joanna realized that he was the the devil in the basement like he almost felt he almost I don't know the 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 whole scene felt like he was ashamed even though he didn't yeah. like so much as twitch yeah I, I don't know how they did that whether it was music in the background or something but like he looked like he was shamed yeah it was really, really like it just going back to like what I mentioned, like his face. It was, I think it was everything in that moment. And what you just did, Priscilla, was foreshadowing because I, I really like how we're starting to see the humanization of Dream a little bit. I, I don't want to call it a relaxing because that's the wrong word, but maybe a, a chipping away at that cold marble like facade that i mean anyone has ever looked at the sandman cover where they have morpheus on it he looks like living marble and the actor has done such a great job of portraying that with only the slightest you know hints of emotion he's clearly someone who holds his cards very closely but in this moment and as things progress through the episodes like i do feel like we are seeing exactly what you're saying we're seeing a kind of breakdown where he's letting go a little bit but he's also having some like realizations about humanity and the tunnel vision that he had about them in the past both before and now and i'm really excited to see him go on this journey because it's not something that's happening fast it's like unraveling slowly and it's just we're like fish on a hook and and, and we're, we're getting reeled in very slowly and agonizingly to see where this goes for dream and everyone involved with him so after the interaction in the apartment, you know, this begrudging respect and humanizing that's starting to kind of happen, we get a stroll through London because Joanna's realized she kind of remembers where the bag of sand actually probably is. And I don't know about you, but it would be very awkward to have any reason to go to your ex's house. But let alone to show up and be like, hey, yo, you got a bag of magical supernatural dream sand that I left here and I'm here after not being here for a long time to get it back. Kind of awkward, right? Well, Johanna feels that. She really feels that because it is her ex Rachel's house where she believes that she left the sand and she left said girlfriend without a breakup, without any note, without anything. She just kind of left and didn't go back like six months ago. And instead of dear John, it's dear Johanna, I guess. But she comes back 
she's like, all right, this is the building. But on the way to the building, they talk about love. And she makes a remark that, you know, it just never ends well, does it? And Dream kind of lets us in a little bit. And it, and it gives you some foreshadowing, I think, for something we're going to talk about maybe next episode. But uh, he says very heavily, no, I guess it does not end well, does it? And so there's like this micro little bonding over love and love lost. And they get to the apartment building and Johanna's like, all right, she's probably going to slam the door in my face, which is what I'm going to do to you right now when she lets me in. But she's also dreading the buzzer that she has to buzz because she's like, this is going to be awkward. And she buzzes. But where you would expect to be, hey, who the hell is there? Who is it? I don't want any. The door just buzzes open, oddly, without any preamble. And Johanna says, all right, cool, wait here. I'll work my mojo and get it back and be right back. So Dream and Matthew are chilling outside the apartment while Johanna walks up a very ominous apartment stairway, let me tell you, because I was like, this looks like she's going up to some, like, deep, creepy, like, Victorian tower in a house. But the spiral image going up we get of her climbing up these stairs, and when she gets there, she knocks on the door, and her ex, Rachel, opens the door, looking healthy, happy, Oddly, not angry, but bemused as to why Joanna is there. Thus begins some, you know, awkward ex-boy, you know, banter like, oh, oh, oh boy, I wasn't here when I should have been. That's not cool. But I'm kind of here now, and let's kind of talk about it. And they have a very interesting exchange that has clearly got some sexual tension underlying that was portrayed. And they end up making out. A little bit after Johanna awkwardly apologizes and gets invited inside. And so we can tell where it's going. We can get an idea. And we pan out to Matthew and Dream. And once again, Matthew is reminding Dream that Lucien sent him because he knows all about humans and Dream doesn't. And right now, given what he's seen based on the type of person Johanna is, he's like, she ain't going to help you. She has no desire to do anything that doesn't help herself, and right now this does not help her. So she's probably up there making plans to run away with your sand while you're just sitting out here like a chump in the rain waiting for it to happen. And it actually makes some sense to dream. And against his word of staying put, he decides to go check on her and Rachel. Cue the camera back to those two who are, you know, making out, and they're getting a little hot and heavy. But then... As Johanna suggests they go to the bedroom, Rachel kind of stands her ground and says, you know, we can't just kind of fall back in together into bed. We, we can't just bump uglies right now after all this happened and things get a little weird. Johanna's kind of like, well, I know, but – and there's clearly love between these two and frustration on both parts. And then it gets weird because as Rachel is kind of confronting her about the seriousness of what she did and Johanna's backing away – Johanna looks alarmed because this gray aspect pallor starts going up Rachel's face and throughout her body, and Rachel eventually dissolves into dust. And we find ourselves standing in a dilapidated version of the apartment that we were just looking at, and that Rachel is gone. The apartment is looking like Mrs. Havisham's place from Great Expectations, and Dream is there, and they go in. And there is the real Rachel laying in bed and girls in some pretty bad shape. She's laying there with a bag of sand in her hand. 
and clearly has been using this sand to control her dreams and make dreams of being with Johanna and having a good time and not being alone because clearly Rachel was alone and missed her very much. And she's been trapped in these dreams since Johanna left because as Dream says, my tools were never meant for mortal hands. And there's unfortunately nothing I can do for her right now because by being in perpetual dreaming, her body is wasted away. She's emaciated, she is not healthy, she is clearly on death's door. And he says, there's nothing I can do. Johanna passionately calls him out and says, you don't care about anyone but yourself and your powers and your realm and what pertains to you. Kind of turning Matthew's observation about her onto Dream, and she really calls him out. And for a moment, you can tell he's thinking. And he's not. He's like, should I? Shouldn't I? And as Johanna's words ring in and kind of dive into him, Dream realizes there's a little kernel of truth there. And he asks Johanna to leave the room, and she kind of takes the hint that he is going to do something. And we see him utilize the sand to give Rachel what everyone wants at the end. A happy, peaceful death in a happy dream with Johanna. She dies peacefully with no pain. And that is the end, after our very brief introduction to her, of Rachel. So let's talk about this, because this was pretty heavy. Priscilla, what did you think of this? Everything that happened with Rachel, the dream, the apartment, did it tug on your heartstrings? It was, like, the worst sort of dream, because at the very beginning, she's happy with her ex-girlfriend. She's like, kissing her and it's it just reminds me that Constantine cannot be happy no matter what his his loved ones always end up dying or going to hell like it's just a thing if, unless you're King Shark or something like that like but still like it's crazy I felt so bad and it it almost felt like a little part of me is like, no, why do the lesbians always have to die? Why what like why why do they always have to make like gay people suffer? But like it's part of the lore. Like it, it's just it's just what it is. So even in Joanna's dream when she's like, I, I, I contacted your 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 exes it must be like subconsciously like she's thinking and she's feeling guilt over like the three exes that she remembered plus her ex-girlfriend like she can't have a nice dream her her dreams always end up in nightmares and i just i felt bad and when dream breaks through and stops the whole like decaying portion of the dream i was so grateful for that because i was like stop torturing constantine jesus and when he tells her that there's nothing he can do i was i was heartbroken especially like the little hand like reaching out for the sand so sadly like she's like no let me live my dream like let me live how I've been living happy in my dream with my love. Like, it's 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 pathetic and sad and just, uh, someone shouldn't die like that. It's it, So I'm happy 
that Dream decided to be merciful and soften and let the let Rachel die with a smile in her heart with her seeing Joanna again in her dreams. Like that's I don't know. It, it we we meant we saw earlier that Dream doesn't have any reason to feel any love for humanity, but this show this shows a softening of his being. Like he's not just the cold endless who's like stuck in his realm anymore. Now he's got a deal on the muck and with people and it shows that he's got some caring in his heart. I like a smile in her heart. Priscilla, you should write titles for Hallmark movies. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Jeff, did your heartstrings get tugged? Yes. Oh, God, I just I felt so bad for her. Like, literally, when it happened and when, you know, she sort of disappeared in the sand, I was like, no. And then when I saw her, like, emaciated, because, like, for six months, I'm assuming, she's been in the bed with the sand, dreaming. I was like, oh, that's just so tragic and so sad. It, it was beautifully done. Oh, spectacular. And everything about it, the interaction, the dream, uh, uh, her and... and uh, and and uh and dream it was just all spectacular the one thing that i thought to myself about this and i'm not saying this as a naysayer about the gender flipping of constantine because i i mean you know i feel like we're in the year 2022 and let's be real the majority of literary creations are white men or white women so either gender bending them or turning a character that in you know in literature you know was uh, Caucasian and turning them into BIPOC, I think that's progress, and um, you know it, it's it's modernizing these older stories that clearly did not express representation well. My only thing as I was watching this was I wondered because we had never seen Constantine as a woman. I was like, did they do this because it's much more palatable for American audiences to have a bisexual character be a woman than a man? And that's the only thing that I wondered in my mind, you know, based off of just American culture and uh, the acceptance of sort of like the sexuality spectrum. I don't know if it popped into anybody's mind here, but it did make me think because, you know, we do see many more women be bisexual in media and, um, you know, and or be lesbian. And so that's all that I thought in my mind as I was watching it for like ha a half a second. I was like, hmm, I wonder if they did that because of the acceptance of that. I don't know. But that's just something that I thought. I don't know if anybody thought it. So I I was curious as to why they they went with a female because if I remember correctly in the comics it is and Priscilla correct me if I'm wrong but it is actually the regular Constantine that we're used to right Yeah it is Yeah um I did catch in the episode they actually refer to her as a descendant of a Constantine that he knew and I looked it up and I could I didn't find why they chose to go with the female. I think it could be 
that Neil was involved with the casting. And one of the things that's been going all over the internet is him like shutting down trolls and saying that you might not like the casting choices that I made, but wait on judging it until you watch the show. So I choose to believe that they made this major change because this actress, maybe he saw her and was like, I think she'd be great. Let's try this or something along those lines. Maybe she was great. Yes. No, I'm not my my whole thing wasn't negating that, but it's just, you know, it makes you think about yeah. representation and media and that sort of thing and and sort of like the tolerance and acceptance of American audiences. So it was like, I, hmm. I didn't see um Legends of Tomorrow was Constantine portrayed as bisexual there. He was, yes. Yes. He had a full-on okay. relationship with a man during the series' run and women as well. So it's not as if the American audiences aren't used to Constantine. I have a more positive aspect of it. I feel like... Well, no, I don't want to say I had a negative aspect of it. It was just something that popped into my head because I was like, hmm, how American media sort of reacts to that. Mm -hmm. But I feel like they're like Jenna Coleman's on, on the line and she wants to portray a character. Let's give her Constantine fuck it, we'll make him, we'll, we'll make him a girl. Like, that's, that's, I think how that's how it went down. And that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, for me, like, you know, I, I, I hate to say that I was one of the naysayers about the casting, but obviously, you know, those of us who read the comics were following any news, or we most likely were, following news about the casting as the show was in development. I will say that for me, so far, all of my casting doubts have done exactly what neil said they would do and they've been erased because we're we're seeing such fascinating versions of these characters and th- this whole scene was really great for me because i feel like it captured the character of constantine regardless of male or female like the essence of that person's life and all the hell that they have gone through no pun intended and the the constant like hey you can have a little bit of happiness but it's always going to be tinged with sacrifice and loss and nightmares and and bad shit. And they executed it so beautifully. And I really, really, like, I teared up a little bit when Rachel went and Dream gave her the happy ending. I'm not going to lie. It was really beautiful. And Jeff, you had commented on, like, the, the, the CGI earlier in the episode with the demon being really, really almost flawless. And the, the disintegration of Rachel... Like, I had to go back, and I don't know if this was the same for you guys, but I actually, the first time around, did not notice the gray seeping up on her until she was, like, almost fully gray, because it was done so subtly. Did you guys catch that? No, I completely agree. Like, when I was watching it, like, it seems like she started, like, crumbling before the gray hit. Yeah. It's just, the colors are gorgeous. Like, the, the detail work is nice. Absolutely. It, it was really, really amazing. And so here we have a little bit of closure for Joanna and her ex and their love for the ages. And we're given a break from that heartbreak. And we go back to our mother and son, mommy, dearest, and um, I'm not going to say Christina because it's John. But uh, Ethel and John are still kind of having their back and forth about the ruby. And she's like, you know, clearly this isn't going to work. He's probably not going to give me the ruby. And because of things that happened to him and him saying that these things happened because six people were after me and my ruby and they were bad and I killed them, it won't happen again. Ethel does something that 
I know I wasn't expecting her to do. She gives John the orb of protection in order to give him a mother's protection and love that she couldn't give him growing up. She actually says, I'm sorry I was a shit mother. She tries to give him the orb and he's like, no, no, mom, you need it. You need it. This is what's keeping you alive and protecting you. But Ethel will not hear no for an answer in a uncharacteristically super maternal sacrifice. Ethel gives John the orb and he takes it. We have another sort of slow disintegration as Ethel's past hundred years kind of catch up to her. And she starts to go all Gloria from the Titanic and she's looking like she's not doing so hot. John tries to give her the amulet back and she's like, no, it's too late. And I want to do this. I want you to be able to be happy and be safe. She continues to age rapidly, falling into his arms, and there she dies in her son's arms, and Ethel Cripps Burgess, whatever, whatever else name she had, dies in her son's arms. John is visibly upset and frustrated that his mother is dead and calls out for help out of concern. A guard comes in, and the guard is like, what did you do? And John's like, I didn't do anything. And the guard asks him to step back and stand up, and John does, but he's like, I didn't do anything, and don't shoot me. You really don't want to shoot me? Remember that line, listeners, because we're going to hear it a few more times. He's like, you don't want to shoot me. You'll only be hurting yourself. But the guard does not listen. We are greeted with, once again, what happens when someone attacks someone using the orb of protection, except this time, it's not a nightmare like the Corinthian was. We get to see what happens when a living human being, organs and blood and guts and all, attacks someone with the orb, and the guard basically kind of turns inside out, slash explodes, slashes, becomes jello everywhere. John kind of reacts, he's like, huh, and walks out of his cell for the first time in however many years, 30 plus years, I think it was. He ends up getting an elevator. There's two other guards that are there. They're like, no, you're not going anywhere. And once again, don't shoot me. You'll only hurt yourself. You don't want to do that. And when the elevator opens up, we get a very phantasmagoric view, like an elevator to hell, of John walking out of the elevator that is covered in gore and guts and pieces of these guards. And he finds himself in the lobby of a skyscraper or office building and he walks outside into the streets of cold and unforgiving buffalo new york and as he's standing there in the cold a familiar face walks up now john doesn't know him john clearly does not know that this is the corinthian but the corinthian posing as a good samaritan offers up his jacket and john is like well can i give this back to you when i get where i'm going and the corinthian says oh no the only thing that I need is for you to get to where you need to go. And the Corinthian kind of walks off, leaving John standing there and a little bit warmer now. And we come back to Dream and Johanna. He comes outside and he informs Johanna that Rachel died peacefully in her dream. And Johanna kind of just nods and accepts it. I think she knew with her track record that when the supernatural get involved with someone that she cares about, it always ends badly. And so she doesn't rail at Dream for not finding a way to save Rachel. She instead points out that, you know, not all of us are like Roderick Burgess. 
not all of us are bad apples out to hurt people and hurt others and only thinking about ourselves. And this is in the rain. You know, they're in this beautiful little archway between buildings or somewhere having this conversation. And she makes that comment to Dream and she starts to walk away. For me, I, I thought this scene was beautiful when she opens up her umbrella and walks through the cascading rain. And as she's walking away, Dream calls out and lets her know that memory will never haunt you again. And now Dream and Matthew are together. And Dream has a moment where he's like, don't go spying on me ever again. Because earlier with the whole Rachel thing, Matthew was outside the window pecking and kind of watching what was going on. And Dream is a little pissed. But Matthew points out, I wasn't. I wasn't spying on you. Trust me. You wouldn't know if I was. And they begin to have a little bit more of a conversation that's a little bit more congenial. And Dream accepts that, you know what? I think actually it'll be good to have you along, especially where I'm going. And Matthew, curious, is like, well, wh where, where are you going? And Dream informs him that he's going to need him help on his journey into hell. So, Jeff, what did we think of this ending with the uh, wrapping up of these two story arcs? Oh, it was so good. The whole gnarliness of uh, the uh, protection amulet was fantastic. I love that effect. It, it was so good. Uh, props to uh, Jolie Richardson uh, because Ethel that we were introduced to I don't know if I would have bought, you know, just in general, that she would have done that for her son. But the way that she's been playing her throughout, you know, the time that we've seen her as a grown-ass human, I'm like, you know what, I can kind of buy it based off of your acting. I thought that was a really nice and neat moment. I'm not quite sure what to do with John just because the way that he's being played, it looks like he's got a couple screws loose. You know, he's got some trauma that he's dealing with. So I feel like the world should be terrified that he has escaped because I, I genuinely have no idea like how he's going to behave himself in the universe right now yeah Mr. and Silk? the fact that the corinthian oh, oh. is a thousand percent down for his cause means <laughs> that whatever he's got planned is clearly gonna fuck with dream because that seems to be the corinthian's life work Yes. I mean, who doesn't want to escape the yoke of their master, right? I mean, there's a part of me that kind of feels for the Corinthian, not a very big part, but like I understand his motivation a little bit. Now, Priscilla, John talked to, John has talked and we got a good exposure to him this episode and we get more eventually, but in your perspective of John in the comics, and what we got as our first full-on introduction to John in, in this scene, and just your general observations about the end of the episode as well. What are you thinking over there? 
I like the, this iteration of John. He seems like a doddering old man at the very beginning. He's just kind of like, please don't shoot me. I, you're just going to hurt you. And he's, I don't know, like there, there's a screw loose in his head. And that's kind of how it was in the comics, too. So it it makes sense to me. I like I, I, I like where they're they're going with, with his character. And the goodbye with his mother. Oh, it was so sad when she when she's like, I know I was a shit mother. I was like, Oh no, even moms aren't supposed to reveal that. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but him hugging her goodbye and then just leaving, it, it was so cold. Like He's like, I've got something to do. And um, and as soon as he, like, just takes the orb and leaves, I um, I was like, this is not going to be good. This is going to be what most of the season is going to be about. Because, I don't know, the, the way they're dragging him out and his story out, it's not going to be, like, solved the way Johanna and the, um, the sand was resolved in one episode. It was just, I, I don't think it's going to happen that way. And... When the Corinthian is outside and he's like, you must be cold. Here's a jacket to make you feel warm. I'm like, you, you stop being so two-faced. If, if if he just smacked your little glasses away, he would see that you're a monster. I don't trust you. And a part of me, like, forgot that he had the orb and was like, <gasps> he's going to die, he's going to die, he's going to die. But no, like, they they added such tension to that to that scene with two people like with a lot of power meeting each other and one of them like not noted not realizing what the other is like it's just it's it's good it's like seeing two titans clash it's awesome and as as a side note jeffrey liked the visuals of the orbs powers but I like the sound. The sound is like... Oh, yes. The sound was good. Crunch. Yes. Oh, God. The squelching of it all. Yes. Well, the visuals yeah. were cool because it was so damn bloody and gory. But the sound was spectacular because we really only got the visual once. And let's be real. Yeah. I think we only really needed it once because I'm assuming that's probably an expensive visual. I mean, because the person kind of... I don't even know what to call that. They they almost like it was like an implosion of their entire body turning into an explosion. It was it's very strange. So I think we only really needed to see it once and the fact that afterwards we knew it was happening because of the sound of that whatever the hell that was. It was beautiful. Yes. Love Melodic it. massacre. <laughs> <laughs> all right you know i i agree with both of what you said i co-sign with all of it um this was a very powerful episode and i i think the ending was perfect you know there there were mirrored storylines going on and as we got to the ending i'm gonna be honest i did not expect to see the corinthian be the one that greets john the way that he did and priscilla you hit the nail on the head that the the tension between these two that these only one of them knew was there and that was the Corinthian knowing that he's using John but John having no idea he thinks it's just <clears throat> you know like a good Samaritan or whatever that's really good and really caring I think it does bode for interesting confrontations or an interesting dinamo 
later on between these two and maybe Dream. I'm really curious to see where it goes. And I agree with the the end to Ethel and and John. Jeff, what you said, I also agreed. Like if they they didn't do such a great job writing and acting the scene, her giving that that orb was something that I never thought I would kind of see happening. And so, you know, that turning into John walking out of the facility like Michael Myers in one of the Halloween movies. He was so still. He was in his pajamas, you know, just kind of strutting through, taking his time. It was the lack of urgency just added to the tension of what the hell is this guy going to do? And Priscilla, the reason I asked you like what you thought knowing John the comics, like I remember John being very vicious in the comics and like not liking him at all. I find myself actually kind of liking this version of John. Like I feel myself having feelings of concern for the life that he went through because of Ethel and him kind of being someone that maybe didn't start out with malevolent machinations, but ended up doing what he felt he had to, to protect himself. You didn't feel malevolent machinations when he was in the car with that woman? Ooh, spoilers! Oh, sorry. (laughs) Well, that will be chopped out. And we'll talk about that when we get to that next time. But in this environment right here, his exposition, I, I felt like his malevolence was... Out of necessity, granted a a skewed, screw-loose, crazy person necessity, but he wasn't outright vicious, in my opinion. But on that note, anything that I didn't touch on, anything you guys are feeling strongly about that you want to open up to our listeners about or share, I'll open the floor. I think we covered everything, because I was, like, I think think everything was, was covered pretty well. Shout out to my secretary, <clears throat> me. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, any last nuggets of wisdom? No, no. Yeah, we covered it all, and it was all good. Well, speaking of good, it is time for the MVP, the most valuable player. State which character impressed you throughout the episode and why. Disclaimer, once a character has been chosen, they cannot be selected again. So choose wisely. The Wheel of Fortune is spinning, and it is landing on Jeff. Who's your MVP and why? All right, I'm giving it to Ethel Cripps, the Madame, and all of her other aliases. Uh, Jolie Richardson was fantastic in this episode. And it's it's for what I said. Uh, you know, she sold it for me. Everything that she was saying as Ethel to her son, I bought. And it was because of her acting. She, for me, was just absolutely phenomenal. And based off of the fact that she went from, uh, I don't know how old she was looking, you know, 55 to like a thousand over the course of about 45 seconds. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to give it to her again. So I wanted to take advantage right now and, and give her the MVP because acting wise, I thought she did a fantastic job. And if I'm being fully honest, I feel like there were many MVPs in this episode, and I know exactly who Priscilla is going to select. So I will give her that chance now. Ooh. Well, the Wheel of Fortune is now favoring you, apparently, Priscilla. Who is your MVP? 
Oh, mine is obvious. I've been gushing about her since the beginning. It's Johanna. She was so good. Like, it, I feel like Doctor Strange when he's like, I love you in every universe. Like, I love you as Matt Ryan. I love you as um, as Constantine in the movie. And I love you now. You're such a good, like, you show pain so well. You show it with, like, a grace and, like, a sarcasm. And seeing you go was one of, like, the saddest parts of the episode for me, even when I saw, jo- like, when I saw Jolie Richardson die, because I simply didn't want to let you go. You were a great character. So, yeah. All right, all right. So we've got our first two. And Priscilla, I am very happy to acknowledge that our feud continues to be at an end, because Johanna was not my first choice. I know. My MVP for this episode is none other than Matthew the Raven. So Matthew did not have a lot of screen time or a lot of dialogue. I mean, he had a decent amount, but at first glance, Matthew did not really, you know, seem like a major player. But when I watched it the second time, he really stood out to me because... We've talked about how Dream is going on this journey, not only to get his things back, but also it seems to be to come to an understanding about humanity not being something that is only one-dimensional. And I really feel that Matthew is going to be such an integral and an essential part of that journey, not only helping him get the stuff back, but also kind of adding that human aspect. Lucien hit the nail on the head that Dream needed this, not only to get past the death of Jessamy, which was gruesome and horrible, but also to have a a human presence, even though it's a dead human in a raven's body, but a human presence there to kind of act as a wall to sound things off of, but also to add some really well-written and subtle, sometimes not so subtle, comedy And I love the fact that it was done so well with him. When Matthew had his lines and he was talking about not trusting humans or he's like, no, trust me, if I'm spying on you, you won't know. It could have gone very poorly and fell flat. But the the light humor and the character, Patton Oswalt did an amazing job. So my MVP definitely goes to Matthew. All right. So now it is time to rate the episode. How would you rate the episode on a scale of 1 to 10 Dream Helms? The point system is allowed if you found the episode exceptionally dreamy, deserving of more than 10 Dream Helms. You may, if so inclined, grant it the coveted Golden Dream Helm. Priscilla, you are up first. Give the first one a golden. I gave the second one a ten. I'm giving this one a golden. It's just, it was perfect. It was, it went beyond my expectations of horror with with the body disintegrating three times in three different ways. One turning old, one turning into dust in a dream, and one just turning into goo. So this is just epic, and it showed dream softening, and it showed new characters that you just wanted to know more of, and it had the clashing of two characters who you wouldn't expect one of them to be merciful to the other, but because the other one has the orb, like, he has to be, and it suits his plans. So it's, oh, it's a good, 
gold for sure. Ooh, we're starting off with a high roller, a golden dream helm. Jeff, are we continuing the steamboat of golden dream helms, or are we going somewhere else? We're going somewhere else, but not that far. I'm going to give it a 10. I thoroughly enjoyed the episode as well. Uh, strong acting from everybody. Uh, it was another incredible episode of The Sandman. This is going to be one of those series that I know we're just going to keep on rating highly because it has been absolutely fantastic from the visuals to the music to the acting to the writing. Everything is stellar. So we got a golden and a 10. Hmm. No, I'm just kidding. I knew what I was going to rate this coming into the episode. So I am going to agree with one of you, and it is going to be Jeff. I'm going to give the episode a 10. If you ask me specific critiques or feedback as to why I rated a 10 and not a Dream Helm, I really don't have anything to naysay in the episode. It's just the overall feeling that I got. I was captivated. I really enjoyed it. It was an excellent almost hour of television, and there were a lot of plot threads that we were introduced in the last episode that came to fruition and a culmination in this episode. But for me, when I was done, as much as I loved it and as much as I enjoyed it, it didn't scream out as a golden. It hit me as a solid 10. So maybe there's just like some subconscious part of me that is like not being too giving with my goldens. We'll see if that continues. Because Jeff, I agree with you. I think we're going to continue to rate this highly. So we will have to see, and listeners, if you are curious if the saga continues, you will just need to join us next time for a brand new installment of The Waking Dream. Here is our announcer to remind you how you can interact with us. Follow Poppy Chula Radio on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Poppy Chula Radio. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments? or concerns? Email us via contact at poppychularadio.com. Are you interested in joining the Poppy Chula Radio team as an on-air personality? Email talent at poppychularadio.com. Binge listen to your favorite Poppy Chula Radio programs by visiting poppychularadio.com slash archives. You can also download tonight's broadcast and the rest of the series through Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Just search for The Waking Dream and subscribe. Thanks, announcer. My illustrious co-host, please wish our listeners a good night, starting with Priscilla. Keep your bag of sand away from you and keep your orbs close. Bye, everybody. And the wonderful Jeff. Have a good night, listeners. Dream a little dream with us. Woo! Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Subscribe to The Waking Dream via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also download the entire series by visiting us at poppychularadio.com archives. Good night and pleasant dreams.